I first of all would like to thank the organizers, Charlotte, Mary, and Edmund for having me. Especially Edmund has gone out of his way, not just to accommodate me, but my 10-year-old son. He found accommodation in a college that allows under 16-year-olds on the premises. And he found a sitter sending me an email with the best conference email subject line I've ever received. It said, um, women's responses to the Reformation, childcare. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, in my talk, I'm going to expand the framework of our discussion a little bit. It's been fantastic to hear that research on the Reformation, women is alive and well. I will expand a little, but I don't think explode the framework by um, going overseas, which is of course an extension of the European Reformation, and then also by talking about men and masculinities. I will speak for no more than 30 minutes at most, so there is time to talk about other aspects of, of the topic, if you wish. Okay. Catholicism first reached the Mariana Islands in the late 17th century with the arrival of European Jesuits. The missionaries came on land and sea routes that led via Spain and the Americas to the Pacific Archipelago, amounting to almost 24,000 kilometers, or over half of the Earth's circumference. If we take the European perspective for the moment and posit Rome as the center of Catholic Christianity, the Marianas formed Catholicism's most remote point on the other side of the world, a crucial way station on its path to becoming a global religion. In today's Marianas, Catholicism remains extraordinarily vibrant. No less than 95% of the indigenous Chamorro population identify as Catholic, and not only in name, but as actively practicing Catholics. Exposed to the very forces that have eroded the influence of Catholicism in Europe and Latin America in modern times, notably secularism and Anglo-American Protestantism, Catholicism in the Marianas continues to go very strong. Such a fortuitous future for the faith surely lay way beyond the horizon of the imaginable for the early modern Jesuits who first brought it to the island's shores. Looking back today from the future that the Jesuits could not fathom, it seems to me that one of the central tasks of writing the history of the Reformation in the 21st century will be to find better ways of narrating this history as a global rather than a European story, and that this will mean a deeper, post-colonially attuned engagement with cultures outside of Europe, their interpretive frameworks, and the lasting effects of these frameworks on the history of Christianity. The presence of Catholicism in today's Marianas is, of course, a long-term result of the Catholic reform movement that originated in 16th century Europe. Yet in our globalized world of competing faiths and secularisms, these European origins do little to explain the longevity and particular inflections of island Catholicism. To make sense of this, we need to return instead to the Reformation era itself and trace how indigenous people reformed European Catholicism in their own image from the moment it reached their islands and how they co-created culturally durable forms of the faith. In the time I have, I want to present one example of indigenous appropriation and adaptation of the Christian missionary enterprise that proved crucial to the very course of the mission. I will discuss how indigenous beliefs in ancestral spirits and deeply held respect for shaman sorcerers called makanas influenced islanders' responses to the Jesuits. 
Beliefs in the afterlife and in ritual experts, I will show, made islanders more receptive to Catholicism, but they also led to the sharpest clashes with the Europeans, setting in motion a destructive spiral of symbolic and physical combat that even had ripple effects back in Europe. So I'm also trying to link Pacific history here to confessional developments in the heartland of Catholic reform. Now the motive behind these processes was a battle of gender. And if there is one important thing that I think Reformation historians can bring to global history with its heavy emphasis on the political economy, it is the analysis of culture, of identity, and of gender. All religions propagate ideas about the proper bounds of masculine and feminine behavior, and gender is constitutive of all cultures past and present. So when European Catholics met Chamorro culture in the late 17th century, this encounter took place along what Kathy Brown has termed a gender frontier, or the dynamic space in which culturally specific systems for understanding gender and the cosmos collide, setting in motion transformations of cultural identities on each side of the divide. Jesuits and Macanaz represented two types of hegemonic masculinity that were at once uncannily alike yet diametrically opposed, and hence vying for spiritual supremacy. Each claimed a monopoly on the spirit world that they were ready to defend, if necessary, by relying on the worldly weapons of war. As a rule, European Catholicism came to other parts of the globe on the heels of colonial conquest. Violent conquistadors, a new gender form emerging with European expansion, usually paved the way for the missionary men, the new clerical manhood that was put in charge of the more gentle spiritual conquest overseas. The history of the Marianas, however, provides an intriguing exception to the rule. For over a century, the Spanish monarchy was firmly opposed to colonizing the islands, which Ferdinand Magellan had first sighted already in 1521 and named with the unflattering moniker Island of Thieves, Ladrones. The archipelago later became a vital stopover for the Manila galleon trade, but Spanish authorities considered them too poor to warrant the effort and expense of colonization. Now all this changed dramatically starting in 1668, thanks to a Spanish Jesuit, Diego de San Vitores. After years of lobbying the Spanish crown, San Vitores, supported by the regent queen Mariana of Austria originally, at last set foot on what is now Guam, and immediately renamed the islands Marianas in her honor, a feminization of space that lay the groundwork for the masculine project of evangelization. San Vitores came with a small band of Jesuits, a few lay helpers, some 30 soldiers, and the goal of converting the local population. This was a tall order. The archipelago was home to about 20,000 to 30,000 people dispersed across a chain of 15 islands or 800 kilometers, you see the island chain. So if the Jesuits had any chance of evangelizing the far-flung and populous archipelago, it lay in garnering the support of influential islanders. As luck would have it, the chief of Aganya on Guam, which is here, a man named Kepua, accepted Catholicism immediately and granted the father's land for church and college. Agania became the Jesuit mission headquarters, while Kipua became Don Juan Kipua, the first trophy convert. 
European missionaries and indigenous converts often hold differing views of the meaning of conversion. In Kipura's case, part of the calculation was political. At the time of European arrival, indigenous society was far from the unified Chamorro collective posited later by modern national historiography. It was only the crucible of conquest and conversion that created a single subject population of Chamorros. Initially, the term Chamorro was limited to the upper class of Kipua's ilk, and factionalism between classes and clans was rampant. There was no central political authority on the islands, but rather regular competition among many clan chiefs who vied for increased influence. Kipua, who liked calling himself Big Chief, don't we all, um, apparently embraced the newcomers in a bid for more power. He settled the Jesuits against the objection of a rival chief from the surrounding mountains and interpreted being Catholic as a clan and class privilege. To the Jesuits' dismay, he pressured them to restrict baptism to the social elite, the original Chamorros, and limit their mission to Agania. He also insisted that San Vitoris permanently reside in his, the chief's own home. When Kipur died a mere six months later, it became apparent that his clan's embrace of Catholicism was no less selective. The Jesuits wanted the high-profile convert buried in their church, in keeping with the European customs of patron burials. Kipur's clan, although professing loyalty to Catholicism, insisted that their chief's remains belonged among his people and be preserved in one of the so-called big houses, where the bones of important clan members were kept. The Jesuits went out in the event and buried Kipua in their church, but pre-contact traditions regarding the dead were not so easily put to rest. Pre-contact religion on the islands pivoted on ancestor worship under the guide of ritual experts, the Makanas. The dead were said to live on as spirits and families were obligated to honor them through ritual action. Proper treatment of ancestral spirits promised good luck in fishing, farming, daily life, health, and war. And inversely, an ancestral spirit offended by neglect or the breach of a cultural taboo would wreak havoc such as illnesses, typhoons, or crop failure on the people. When an ancestor had died, therefore, the skull was removed from the corpse, which was buried near or under the house, and brought inside the home for veneration. Islanders presented the skulls with devotional offerings, sang songs of praise, and called upon ancestral spirits for help. The Makanas guided these relationships with the spirit world. They were male spiritual leaders who derived their power from their alleged ability to manipulate and communicate with the world of the spirits. Ordinary islanders enlisted them to translate spirit communications or determine how to mollify offended ancestors. Likewise, Chamorro chiefs, who regularly consulted ancestral spirits on matters of politics, relied on Makanas for verification of their political judgment. The Makamanas were also in charge of the special big houses where the skulls of big chiefs were preserved and where Kepua's family wished his to be buried. They lastly performed a range of services that in European parlance amounted to white and black magic, curing illnesses, producing rain and a good harvest, luck in work and love, but also divining the future and inflicting harm, illness or death upon one's enemies. From an indigenous point of view, it was easy to see a resemblance between Makanas and the newly arrived missionaries. Another all-male spiritual elite, the Jesuits advised the Spanish warriors and their chief on religion and politics, and Chief Kipua 
in all likelihood envisioned a similar role for San Vitoris when he sought to detain him in his home. Like Macanaz, the Jesuits also presented themselves as healers of both body and soul, used ritual paraphernalia like crosses to communicate with the spirits, and organized collective ceremonies of veneration. They too offered spiritual explanation for weather events, a frequent occurrence in the uh, tropics, casting storms as the workings of an angry god or attributing the calming of the seas to the benevolence of saints. The parallels apparently were not lost on the Jesuits either. Indeed, they tried to turn the resemblance to their advantage and in so doing further solidified the comparison. When a terrible drought struck Guam in June 1670, San Vitoris prayed for rain in a public ceremony, usurping a task previously carried out by the local Macanas. Once the floodgates of heaven opened, he claimed due credit. Jesuit Murillo Villade reported that the rain miracle made such an impression on the present islanders that they thereafter referred to San Vitoris as Macana. Not everyone was favorably impressed, however. The original Macanas soon moved to the forefront of an emerging resistance movement among islanders. They tried to dissuade islanders from baptism by asserting that the Jesuits were trying to kill children with their purportedly holy water. During the first year of the mission, European germs had indeed killed about 100 newly baptized infants in Agania, underwriting such allegations of black magic. When a first Jesuit was killed in January of 1671, baptism also played a role, albeit a secondary one. This is an image of Father Luis Medina, one of San Vitoris' original companions, who was evangelizing on the island of Saipan to the north of Guam. He baptized the children on Saipan before making a demand that tellingly sealed his fate. Medina asked the islanders to turn over and surrender to him ancestral skulls they had kept in their house so that he could destroy them. The islanders killed the Jesuit instead. This episode marked the beginning of a series of retaliatory killings that evolved into sustained military conflicts, often and problematically referred to as the Spanish Chamorro Wars, that lasted until 1698. While the soldiers carried out the violence, the Jesuits again determined the colonial agenda. Islanders from the north were forced to resettle in Guam to guarantee their exposure to the word of God, the Jesuits' antidote to the influence of the Macanas. Forced reduction, brutal warfare, and epidemic disease decimated the local population down to 1,700 islanders. These mass indigenous deaths would not be publicly commemorated until a much later date. The death of the Jesuits, on the other hand, quickly made waves around the early modern world. Cast as rival Macanas by some Chamorros in the Marianas, they were touted as martyrs in Europe, personification of Catholicism's most heroic masculine death. Peter Bushel has done a lot to illuminate this flourishing culture of martyrdom in Reformation Europe, to which the Society of Jesus contributed by upholding its missionaries come martyrs in various media for admiration and emulation. As you can see, Luis Medina's image already appeared in 1673 in a vita that was published by Francesco de Florencia, who was tellingly also the procurator for the Indies mission. He was based in Seville. The caption reads, pierced with a lance on the Marianas for the faith, and that's probably hard to read here, a true martyr, in other words, a point that is 
reiterated visually here with the lance that you see piercing his chest and the arrow pointing directly at Christ on the, on the cross that, that he holds in his arms. Now Medina and other Marianas martyrs were also featured in, in a variety of places, but uh, in a famous martyrology that Matthias Tanner put out, a multi-volume martyrology, Societatis Jesu as usque ad sanguinis et vitae professionem militans, which paraded the society's dead missionaries in a tour of four continents, from Europe and Africa to Asia and the Americas, featuring detailed descriptions and graphic images of the killings of each man. And I couldn't get an, an image of a Mariana's martyr for this presentation. There's one from the Philippines, but the iconography is, is always quite similar with more or less scantily clad indigenous islanders a fairly barren landscape, a Jesuit holding a cross, and some sort of piercing, or sometimes clubbing and piercing all at once. Um, this kind of media blitz earned the Marianas a reputation as a place where martyrs were still being made, even during this late phase in the Jesuit missions. We're talk talking about this 1670s, 1680s, right? The archipelago on the other side of the world became the stuff of Jesuit fantasies. Eusebius Kino, the famous California missionary, reported in processing his own disappointment over not being chosen for the Marianas that in a single year some 200 men were seeking entrance in the upper German Chesil province in the hope of working and dying in the Marianas. Back then to the Marianas were a few months after Medina's killing, a Spanish search party sought to recuperate his material remains. Just like the islanders treasured the bones of ancestors, European Catholics expressed their veneration of exceptional people by preserving their relics, often skulls, and usually in their own special houses called churches. The party found Medina's corpse in April of 1671, but only to discover that some of his bones had been put to a different purpose. In the absence of metal ores, islanders customarily carved the arm and leg bones of dead enemies into spear tips and lances. They attached cords to the arms and legs before burying corpses upside down so they could easily retrieve the bones once the flesh had decomposed. By the time the Europeans arrived at Medina's burial site, his strings had been pulled already. This upper body portrait then is a posthumous restoration to wholeness. The spare tip of human bone indexes not only Medina's fate as a martyr, but more disturbingly, raw material for a Chamorro weapon. In the event, the Europeans collected what was left of Medina and buried the bones below the main altar in the Church of Agania, swooping up the spiritual potency associated with every bodily fragment for future spiritual combat. Such combat resumed shortly thereafter. A typhoon, again a fairly common tropical weather event, destroyed the homes and farms of some Macanas, leaving them without shelter and sustenance. The Jesuits praised the saints for eradicating the enemies of God. The Macanas, perhaps recalling San Vittorius' alleged rain miracle, railed against Jesuit magic, which they believed was to blame for their misfortune. Next, a catechist was killed when he cut down wood to make crosses, Christianity's core symbol. The Spaniards hunted down and killed the alleged killers, and then some more. By September, another ambitious chief, 
Curao, under the guidance of the Macanaz, gathered all the anti-Spanish troops among the, the islanders. And Hurao is later being made famous by uh, Charles de Gobillard in his history of the Marianas because Gobillard puts an anti, a rousing anti-Spanish speech into his mouth. And anyway, that month also brought a drought, which the Macanaos read as a sign that the ancestors were angry over being abandoned and asked for the expulsion of the outsiders. The big showdown between the parties came in October 1671. Militarily speaking, the anti-Spanish forces advanced to Agania and lay siege to the mission and fortress there. Parallel to this warfare, and of greater interest to me here, a previous symbolic combat took place. This combat is reminiscent of the shaman battles that Dautour has identified for the Paraguay mission, where Antonio Ruiz de Montoya faced off with Guarani shamans and publicly destroyed bones they used in their rituals there. In our case, the Macanaz hauled several hundred ancestral skulls to the front line and surrounded the fortress complex with these material manifestations of ancestral spirits to encourage their warriors. The dramatic action could not prevent a crushing defeat. But even, the, even if the Jesuits considered the Macanaz skulls idols, in what followed we see that the Europeans implicitly also recognized their power. In an iconoclastic spectacle, they smashed each one of the skulls, all 200 individually, to disprove their power and that of the guardians. San Vitoris' Vita recalls, quote, the islanders said, now it was easy to see that their demons were powerless. They said their macanas were imposters who promised things they could not give, end of quote. As much as the Jesuits wished this to be true, not every islander lost faith in their macanas and ancestor veneration. The military wars, for one, were not over. This is only 1671, but neither were the spiritual battles. In the early 1680s, authorities carried out an inquisition confiscating skulls from Macanaz and burning them. They decreed the death penalty for keeping ancestral bones in one's home. But these and other repressive measures only served to fuel more anger upon the indigenous and stir up a final major uprising in summer of 1684. This time, a Jesuit from Tanas, Bohemia, and one of the, uh, in the network of Tanas correspondence cycles, so probably already with an eye towards getting himself memorialized in Tanas' work, the Mandarology. One of the Jesuits from Bohemia, Augustinus Strobach, who had joined the society explicitly because he wanted to become a martyr in the Marianas, was indeed killed. No European saw the event, but indigenous witnesses reported that Strobach's killer yanked his crucifix from his hand and his breviary, declaring in a phrase that's a bit ambiguous that that Christ or that Christian, um, diciendo que aquel Cristo era un, era macana, was a macana. And this phrase also works in, itself into the printed Vita that appears in Olmutz in 1691. But then it's no longer the Jesuit or Christ himself who is the sorcerer. Here he goes on to explain, and um, uh, it, it is like in Spanish, uh, un hechicero, a sorcerer. In the printed version that appears in Olmutz in 1691, it's the, the images that are said to be a form of magic. Uh, I still, I'm fascinated that a phrase from the Marianas would make it 
to Olmutz in 1691. <laughs> well, shaman battles continued all the way into the 18th century. In Saipan, the site of Medina's killing, where the first person died, Father Peter Krudolf had a new church built between 1715 and 1720. His workers stayed clear of the forest because they believed the Makanas were in hiding there. Priests, it seems, claimed the villages, Makanas, the jungle. Things came to a head when Krudolf and the shamans, uh, between Krudolf and the shamans, when one of his young lay catechists was struck by illness, supposedly the work of the island most influential Makana. Krudolf used prayers and saintly relics to cure the catechist, whereupon the sorcerer declared defeat by committing suicide. Or so Krudolf claimed in a sermon to his flock on the perils of pagan practices. It made little difference. In 1744, Krudolf's successor, Josef Bonani from Austria, from Vienna, was still complaining about islanders who kept ancestral bones and venerated skulls. Such controversial practices clearly did not so much disappear in the wake of the military conquest and large-scale evangelization than form a hidden component of Chamorro Catholicism under Spanish colonial rule. To some extent, these practices became feminized after the Jesuit defeat of the Macanas. Sources record the first-time appearance of female healers who took over some of the Macanas' tasks. And rituals for the dead more generally migrated into households and female hands, blending pre-contact matrilineal traditions, which valorized the power of women, especially of mothers, with new forms of devotion to the Virgin Mary. More could be said about Jesuit attitudes and policies toward island women, and we may want to take this up in discussion, but let me conclude my formal remarks here to begin our conversation. I entitled my talk, making Catholics out of Chamorros, but quickly proceeded to argue that making Macanaz out of Jesuits was an important stage in the Christianization of Chamorros. The islanders understood the missionaries in their message within a cultural framework built around ancestor worship and shaman sorcerers. And an understanding of these shaman sorcerers as a form of hegemonic masculinity. Important converts like Chief Kipua were looking for new and better Macanaz in the Jesuits, men who could help them address traditional spiritual needs, but also increase their social and political influence. Jesuits like San Vitoris, in turn, played on the resemblance to the indigenous alter egos with whom they rivaled with spiritual supremacy on the island. In the end, beyond the obvious doctrinal issues, the Jesuits had to dislodge the Macanas for the spiritual and political conquest to succeed. And in so doing, they came to depend on the dirty business of colonial warfare and domination. This very same process of escalating violence that cast Jesuits as martyrs or victims and drew more Europeans to the mission brought the islanders to the brink of extinction and cultural annihilation. Still, even in the most dire circumstances, islanders maintained spirit and ancestral beliefs, incorporated Christian codes and symbols, and created syncretistic practices, a fusion of Christian Chamorro beliefs that was destined for the long run. Let me close by quoting an anthropological account of contemporary death rituals in Guam. The authors conclude that today, quote, many Chamorros can believe in two fates after death, one earthly on the island itself and another celestial. The celestial is being secured through baptism, properly saying the novena and performing a Catholic funeral. 
The earthly destination for the soul is located in isolated and pristine parts of Guam's jungle. Here live the souls of the ancestors who have become the emblem of pre-colonial identity. Encounters with these spirits are frequent and innocuous as long as they are treated with the respect they deserve." End of quote. With such ancestral blessings, we might add, it is no wonder that Chamorro Catholicism continues to grow strong. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ulrika, for a wonderful, rich paper, and I think it's expanded our horizons, not just geographically, but also 